While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. This is a moving through Georgia extra. Now, if you recall our last episode, it was about Eula Mae Thompson, who had been convicted of a murder, but had that sentence commuted to life imprisonment on the say-so of Governor Hardman. Governor Hardman was a medical doctor and a practice of the science of phrenology. Hardman looked at photographs of Eula Mae and at photographs of Clifford Thompson and John Moss, her two co-defendants. He determined that Thompson and Moss had a propensity for murder and therefore didn't stand in the way of their execution. Eula May, however, was different. She had the possibility of being reformed and therefore her sentence was changed to life in prison. And this decision, this decision was based on the science of phrenology. Phrenology was initially developed in the late 1700s by Franz Joseph Gall. Gall had a theory. Now, his theory was that the brain was not one single organ, but was in fact either 27 or 31 individual organs working together. He believed that different organs determine different parts of your personality. So there might be a generosity organ, um, a, a loving your children organ, but also a theft organ and a murder organ. He also believed that in infants and children, the brain didn't have any extra space in the cranium. It was right up against the bone. So as these different organs developed, and perhaps some organs developed more than others, the developing skull would have to adapt, and therefore it would change the shape of the skull overall. So for example, if you had an abnormally large murder organ, and believe me, someday I'm going to start a true crime podcast just so I can name it abnormally large murder organ, but if you had one of those, your head would have changed shape to adapt to it. And we could tell that by looking at it, by measuring your head. He proved this early on mostly by measuring the heads of criminals. Now, Gall was not exactly a proponent of the scientific method. He might put out a paper saying that he had 15 arsonists who all had lobes in their skulls shaped a certain way, and he would ignore all the arsonists he may have met that didn't have those particular lobes. He was uh, very big on confirmation bias. But this became a popular science. It was not unusual for couples about to get married to have their heads examined to make sure that they would be compatible in the future. And it wouldn't be unusual for an employer to have a potential employee have their head examined to make sure that they're honest enough to work in their firm. It can't be any more irrational than those Myers-Briggs tests they give you when you try to get a job at the mall. Phrenology was also studied by people who were involved in law enforcement. Now, this brings up an interesting argument, a sort of a determinism versus free will sort of uh, dichotomy. 
what do you do if you have someone with an abnormally large murder organ? They didn't develop it that way themselves. It just sort of happened. Now, that person can't be permitted to just go out and kill people. Uh, they, you, they, they can't. I've checked, all right? So someone would have to help that person channel those energies and those impulses into something positive, like working at a slaughterhouse or a butcher shop. Now, let's say you're a judge and you have two suspects in front of you, both of which have been convicted of theft, and you have to hand out the sentence. If one has an abnormally large theft organ and the other one has an abnormally large, say, generosity organ, do you give them both the same sentence? As a phrenologist, you know that the guy with the abnormally large theft organ thinks about theft all day long doesn't matter what they tell you. You already know. These are questions society struggled with during the heyday of phrenology, which was about 1810 to about 1840. Once it started losing popularity, it lost popularity fast. Pretty soon, most people's interactions with phrenologists was basically like fortune tellers. You would go to the fair and have your tarot cards read, have your palm read, and have the bumps on your head read. It came back into fashion for a short time with the Fowlers. The Fowlers ran a museum of phrenological curiosities in New York City. One of their more famous exhibits was a cast of the skull of Aaron Burr, and they had determined that Aaron Burr had overlarge organs of secretiveness and destructiveness. If you've ever seen the ceramic heads with different parts of the skull labeled, those were popularized by the Fowlers. The American Phrenological Journal and Miscellany, which was put out by the Fowlers, actually remained in print until 1911. So when Governor Hardman said that he used his phrenological knowledge to determine that Eula Mae Thompson was innocent in 1928, he was definitely not in the mainstream. And of course, phrenology would also be used for racist purposes to supposedly provide proof that other races were inferior to the white race. Now, of course, we know that in a way, some of this is true. There are different parts of our what we would call our mind controlled by different geographic parts of the brain. But it isn't quite so cut and dried as a lump over the right ear, meaning that you're going to be a pickpocket. And of course, you know, for most modern listeners, your only exposure to phrenology would be, you know, a, a chart on the wall of the tarot card shop if you ever visited a fortune teller, or the fact that whenever Bugs Bunny hit somebody over the head with a mallet 20 or 30 times, he would then feel the bumps and tell the person they were going to go on a long trip soon. And of course, phrenology also led to the study of anthropometry. Anthropometry is the very, very precise measurement of different parts of the human body. And of course, when we think of anthropometry, we think of the French police force. If you were arrested in France in the 1800s, they would measure the width of your eyes and, you know, the breadth of your nose and how thick your lips were. These would be recorded, so if you were arrested later and gave a fake name, they could use those statistics to identify you. 
And as you can probably figure, the developing science of the study of fingerprints basically was the cork in the bottle for anthropometry. That's all.